Greetings, Retrogram fans. Just as Mars needs women, Retrogram needs reviews. If you're getting the show from sources like iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher, and we are now in all of those places, by the way, please leave a review of the show because it helps to boost Retrogram a little bit in the rankings, and it helps other listeners find the show and possibly support it down the road, too. To put it very simply, this helps Retrogram survive into the future to cover more wonderful genre TV obscurities from the past. As always, thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Retrogram, revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 7409. Houston, we have quite a large number of problems. The week of February 24th, 1974. Welcome back to Retrogram, the show that takes one week between 1970 and 1990, reviews all of the sci-fi, fantasy, superhero, and horror shows during that week, and puts them all into one podcast. I'm Earl Green, your host, and we are rewinding to 1974, which is kind of an odd thing to do in a month that is focusing on shows that had a connection somehow to the exploration of the moon. The last week of February 1974 was the end of one busy month and the beginning of another. People magazine had just gone into circulation. Imagine that, a magazine about people, unlike every magazine that had ever been published before. And a snap election in the UK left the country in a hung parliament. Harold Wilson was about to move back into 10 Downing Street. Earlier in the month, the F-16 fighter jet entered service. Patty Hearst was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. NASA's Mariner 10 spacecraft obtained the first photos of Venus showing cloud structure in the planet's atmosphere by shooting through UV filters. The second crew to occupy the Skylab space station returned to Earth. Blazing Saddles premiered in theaters. And in Washington, the House of Representatives started the process of determining grounds for the impeachment of President Richard Nixon. You know, back when Houses of Congress actually did that sort of thing. It was quite a month. But what does any of this have to do with going to the moon? Other than providing taxi service to and from Skylab, wasn't Apollo, well, over? Not quite. The Apollo spacecraft, particularly the command and service module, was originally envisioned as a versatile vehicle that would carry a lander to the moon, ferry crews to and from a space station, and in a little over a year, would carry out an unprecedented docking with a Soviet Soyuz capsule in Earth orbit, demonstrating technologies and techniques that might make a rescue mission in space possible. There were even very tentative plans on paper, if not in practice, to possibly send a beefed-up Apollo mission that would take a small crew to orbit the planet Venus, study it for a little while, and then return to Earth. 
Apollo was a spaceship good for more than just going to the moon, but its days were already numbered since the Nixon administration had redirected NASA's future toward a reusable space shuttle in 1972. Apollo was still very much in the public consciousness, though, and Hollywood was playing catch-up on revisiting some of the dramatic highlights of Apollo's lunar glory days. The week of February 24, 1974, for better or worse, contained the first major TV movie dramatization of one of the most notable Apollo missions, the one that didn't quite go right. And come to think of it, on both sides of the Atlantic, Skylab was popping up in sci-fi series left and right, too. The Apollo spacecraft was now routine enough for sci-fi storytellers the world over to accept it as a perfectly normal thing to include in their stories. The fact that enough missions had been flown that there was a large reserve of ready-made stock footage probably helped quite a bit. But this retrogram doesn't begin at a launch pad in Florida, my friends. Oh, no. It begins on Earth, on a dark street in the Big Apple. Orson Welles' Great Mysteries, Episode 26, The Furnished Room, aired on Sunday, February 24th on ITV in the UK. John Cambridge, a man with no fixed abode, is looking for a room, just one room, to rent in Manhattan. He happens to land on the doorstep of Mrs. Purdy, who rents out rooms by the week. What brings John here? He's looking for someone. Someone named Louise Vashner. She might have been in showbiz. She's beautiful. Have you seen her? Mrs. Purdy says that while she often rents to what she calls theater people, she hasn't seen the object of John's perhaps slightly obsessive affections. Perhaps proving the slightly obsessive part, John isn't quite sure he believes her. He's shown up to his room. One big bed, a dresser, a wardrobe, a window looking out onto a fire escape and into the streets below. Someone left clothes behind in the dresser, a woman's clothes. John is sure they're Louise's clothes. There's a mirror by the wardrobe, and he's sure he sees her behind him when he glances at his own reflection in the mirror. He runs downstairs to talk to Mrs. Purdy again. Are you sure she wasn't here? Yeah, she's sure, and this is getting a little weird. John returns to the room. Mrs. Purdy returns to a tall bottle of something. Her friend Mrs. McCool drops by to help her polish off that tall bottle of something. As the two women drink, John is back in his rented room. He's stuffing the sheets from the bed under the door and into the window cracks. And he's cranking up the gas for the heater, but he's not lighting the heater. Just going to lie down and die. In the mirror, the woman he saw before is still there. Downstairs, still drinking, I guess they don't smell the gas. Mrs. McCool is admiring Mrs. Purdy's business sense in not telling the new renter that a woman killed herself in that room just a week ago. What was her name again? Louise something? Never mind. Drink up. The end. Orson Welles' Great Mysteries ran for one season spanning 1973 and 74 on Anglia Television, 
one of the numerous independent regional broadcasters from the crazy heyday of the Independent Television Authority in the UK. In this case, Anglia covered Eastern England, and its best-known output was the nature series Survival, which did make it to the U.S. by way of PBS. At this point in time, however, Anglia Television was not in good health, as one of its transmitters had just been handed over to Yorkshire Television at the ITA's behest. This pretty much sliced Anglia's revenue cleanly in half. It would take a few years of being a leaner operation before Anglia Television would recover, and we'll be talking about one of its few other genre productions, Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected, in other installments of Retrogram. Anglia continued throughout the 80s and 90s before its identity was subsumed into modern ITV early in the 2000s. While it's still there, technically, as a broadcaster, it no longer produces its own programming. Clarence Williams III stars as John Cambridge. Clarence was born in Harlem, and he's the grandson of legendary jazz man Clarence Williams and blues singer Eva Taylor. He starred in The Mod Squad as Link Hayes. This episode of Orson Welles' Great Mysteries was his first on-screen guest-starring role after that series ended. After this, he would have guest roles in T.J. Hooker, Hill Street Blues, Miami Vice, The Highwayman, Twin Peaks, Tales from the Crypt, New York Undercover, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, in which he was a Jem'Hadar, Walker, Texas Ranger, Millennium, Law and Order, the Mystery Woman series of made-for-TV movies, Burn Notice, and Empire. On the big screen, you've seen Clarence as the father of Prince's character in Purple Rain, as well as I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, Sugar Hill, Tales from the Hood, Reindeer Games, and American Nightmares, among many others. It's important to remember that despite the limited scope of his role here, Clarence Williams III was fresh off a major hit series, and he was a real get for the makers of this show. Tony Award-winning actress Irene Worth was also American, but she moved to the UK in 1944 and stayed there. She appeared in the BBC Sunday Night Theatre and the ITV Play of the Week in the 50s and numerous other TV and film appearances later, but by and large she was a stage performer and appeared in quite a few of the greats during her career. She moved back to the U.S. in the 1970s, working primarily on Broadway, with a few on-screen roles on both sides of the Atlantic. She appeared in a few things like AMC's first original series, Remember When, in the 1990s. We lost Irene Worth in 2002. The episode is directed by Alan Gibson. He had already directed episodes of Journey to the Unknown, a 1960s anthology series, with, often with supernatural sci-fi plot lines, Adventures of Black Beauty, and half a dozen previous episodes of this series. He had also directed some Hammer horror films, most notably Dracula A.D. 1972 and The Satanic Rites of Dracula. He went on to direct episodes of 1990, Hammer House of Horror, Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected, and The Charmer, which was his last directing assignment before he died in 1987. The Furnished Room was adapted from a story by O. Henry by David Ambrose. Ambrose adapted three other classic short stories for Orson Welles' Great Mysteries, and he also had a hand in the 1977 spoof documentary Alternative 3. He wrote the movies The Final Countdown, you know, the one with the time-traveling USS Nimitz, Amityville 3D, and Daryl, among quite a few others. He's primarily been a novelist rather than a screenwriter since the end of the 20th century.
He also turned in a script titled Deadlock for the never-produced 1970s TV revival of the original Star Trek in 1978, now commonly referred to as Star Trek Phase Two. Ambrose's episode of that show would have dealt with Starfleet experimenting with mind control in a plotline inspired by the CIA's MKUltra experiments. Or is Starfleet really the culpable party? It's almost sad that it was never produced, because you could have had the raging fandom arguments over Federation and Starfleet idealism some 30 years earlier than Star Trek Into Darkness and 40 years earlier than Star Trek Discovery. Wouldn't that have been something? Sadly, however, this episode is hardly a fitting calling card for any of the talent that I just talked about. There are some great O. Henry short stories to adapt. This is not one of them. In some respects, the TV version improves upon the text by turning the whole thing into more of a literal ghost story with the woman in the mirror. The original text, which is maybe all of six pages long, doesn't even give the name of the man renting the room, and it hinges entirely on the fact that he chooses to end his own life in the same room and in the same manner that the woman he's been searching for ended her own life. That's it. That's the whole thing. That's the twist. I kind of hate it. There's nothing at all pleasant in absorbing a story about someone dying by their own hand and to just smilingly dismiss what seems to be a chain of suicides, however small a chain it may be. I think O. Henry was off his game here. I remember being so wowed by his writing when I was a teenager, and then when I came back to O. Henry's work as an adult and found myself wondering why I had admired his work so much. He had a great way with words, but his twist endings sometimes had no point other than to zing the reader with, boy, I didn't see that coming, but sometimes at the cost of narrative cohesion and consistency, and often at a very cruel cost to the characters. It sometimes doesn't make for pleasant reading. Even with that in mind, this story is uncharacteristically perfunctory and just kind of mean, even for O. Henry. For the record, the original story, titled The Furnished Room, first saw print in 1906 in the same O. Henry short story collection that contained probably his best-known story, The Gift of the Magi. Now, unusually for this series, Orson Welles narrates throughout the episode. Now, typically, he would only introduce the story before it began and would then offer some thoughts after the story ended, right before the end credits. Now, it's nice that Wells is quoting directly from O. Henry's original text and at pretty good length at some points in the story. From what I've seen so far, this is the closest that this series that has Wells' name on it comes to the notion of Orson Welles just telling you a mystery story. It reminds me a little bit of how effective his narration of the Alan Parsons Project's Tales of Mystery and Imagination Edgar Allan Poe album was. It also makes me wish this episode was as effective as that album at telling a story. I kind of find myself wondering when it was decided that Orson would do a... he would have a voiceover presence throughout the whole episode. Like I said, that's really atypical ironically, for Orson Welles' Great Mysteries. At some point did they look at it in the edit and say, oh, this isn't working at all. There's an interesting slow dolly plus pullout of John Cambridge sitting alone in his dingy room, which is a really neat set. I mean, the, the set sells that this is not 
you know, a great place for anyone to spend even so much as a single night. There's something very effective about that shot between the set and the lighting and the cinematography. Other parts of the story, not so much. Now, there's an elephant in the room that I almost hesitate to bring up. If O. Henry didn't even give his weary, vagrant traveler a name in the original story, he certainly didn't specify the color of the man's skin. I'm always happy to see Clarence Williams III in anything, because I was kind of weaned on Mod Squad reruns. It's nice to see some colorblind casting in 1974. John Cambridge shows up looking for a room to rent. His race doesn't come into the story at all. However, now that I'm a little older and wiser, my spidey sense tells me that it probably would have been a factor if the story was a real event. That the series was produced in the UK isn't really important in discussing that, because Britain has had race relations and civil rights struggles of its own. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. I'm actually kind of glad the story is left colorblind, though. It's depressing enough as it is without introducing an early 70s race relations angle to it. Fortunately, a lot of Orson Welles' great mysteries was better than this. I'm disappointed that this cast wasn't given a better story to work with, honestly. At the very least, pick a better O. Henry story for starters. Coincidentally, or perhaps not, this was the final episode of the series. The Tomorrow People, Season 2, Episode 4, The Blue and the Green, Part 4. Aired on Monday, February 25th, 1974, on ITV, again in the UK. The story so far. A group of young people, and just flat-out youngsters, led by a young man named John, have developed extraordinary powers, including telepathy, telekinesis, and even an ability to teleport, or jaunt. They're the next evolution of the human being, not Homo sapiens, but Homo superior. They're the Tomorrow People. From a hidden, well-equipped base and with the help of a sentient computer called Tim, they fend off threats to humanity of both human and alien origin, all while trying to lie low and not reveal their identities or true powers to the rest of the world, fearing that the world's governments would seek to weaponize those powers. Some of the Tomorrow People come and go as they get older, taking on risky assignments that we never see, but their mission is always the same. Save the world, sometimes from itself, so that the entire human race might have a chance to evolve as they have. In parts one through three, Stephen and John are going it alone. Their fellow Tomorrow People, Carol and Kenny, have opted to leave Earth to live and learn among other species in the universe. For Stephen, it's back to school. But Stephen has a new teacher and a new classmate. Neither one of them are quite what you'd call normal. His classmate has drawn a picture of the surface of another planet, and the weather depicted in that picture changes, and with it, changes the mood of everyone who sees it. 
Also, Stephen's new teacher, Elizabeth, can hear his telepathic communication with John and Tim. When John comes to the school to talk to her, she freaks out, and she jaunts. Just as John suspected, she is a latent tomorrow person, just on the verge of her abilities breaking out. John and Stephen have to venture into hyperspace to retrieve Elizabeth and bring her back to safety. They've got a lot of explaining to do. In the meantime, Stephen's classmate Robert, the one who drew the picture, is now handing out nifty badges to everyone in class. They're either blue or green. Here, take some extras. Give them to your friends and family. When the weather in Robert's otherworldly piece of artwork changes, it signals the beginning of hostilities between wearers of the blue or green badges. And the effect is not limited to the school. John finds another painting remarkably similar to Robert's picture in his shop window. And what a coincidence, the shop is owned by Robert's grandfather. John brings the painting back to Tomorrow People HQ, and Tim is not happy about it. Get that thing out of here. It literally melts down when it's subjected to a neutrino scan, and so does John. He vanishes with a scream. The Blue and the Green, Episode 4, Cuckoo in the Nest. John awakens in, is this a dungeon? A storage cellar? What are those funky lights outside of his... Oh, yeah, this is a cell. Yeah, definitely a dungeon. The aforementioned funky lights, referred to hereafter simply as funky lights, are emanating from the body of Robert, Stephen's fellow student, who has a somewhat mysterious background and apparently equally mysterious powers. Back at Tomorrow People HQ, Tim has done his homework. Everywhere in the world where people have gone bonkers for the blue and green badges, it all started with a kid with a sketchy background. In every case, the kid is staying with someone they identify as their grandfather, though in every case none of these grandfathers can remember how they came to be the primary caretaker or custodian for the child in question. The expenses that this army of forgetful grandfathers racks up in caring for these kids are paid for out of a trust fund, whose paperwork doesn't mention a single one of the kids. Elizabeth wants to know what Tim thinks this all means. The answer is kind of chilling. Tim thinks it's colonization by infiltration. Some alien species is planting its children on worlds whose native populations lack their extraordinary powers with the goal of eventually taking over. Whoever these aliens might be, they hadn't reckoned on the Tomorrow People. But that's all guesswork and supposition. Stephen is ready to take action. He arms himself with a stun gun and jaunts into the shop owned by Robert's grandfather. He uses telekinesis to unlock a door and walks in and down some stairs. There are doors with bars down here. There's cells, and John is in one of them. Hey, Stephen, your telepathic and telekinetic powers don't work down here. That's okay. Stephen's brought a stun gun with him, and when Robert shows up, that weapon doesn't show any conspicuous signs of working either. Worse yet, Stephen's head is suddenly killing him. John urges him to run past Robert up the stairs and out of the building before Robert decides to give Stephen's head an assist. He makes it back to base, just, and he reports to Elizabeth and their friend Chris, who isn't a tomorrow person but comes in handy if brute force is required. Chris decides that he and some of his streetwise pals should pay the shop a visit. They have no extraordinary powers for Robert to deflect, just muscle. But the jailbreak is botched. There's a mirror in the cellar which resonates with a strange high-pitched sound, and Chris can't get his buddies to stick with the program or even stick around. They'd rather loot the place and take off. 
Chris is unable to bust John out of his cell, and when he tries to escape himself, Robert's grandfather is waiting, shotgun in hand. Chris manages to slip past him and run for his life. At the school, Elizabeth is ready to take the picture down, but Robert's there waiting, with some of his classmates. They're not going to let Elizabeth take the picture down, and there it stays. She's kind of scared. Chris trails Robert from the school and tries to grab him, but all he gets Robert to do is drop his books. Robert runs to a nearby police car to ask for help. Hey, this obviously older man threatened me and stole my books. Chris leads the cops on a, and let's call it a medium-speed chase through the countryside before giving them the slip and going back to the base. One of the books Robert was carrying was about the fall of the Roman Empire. Tim finds that fascinating. Tim finds that fascinating. The mindless violence Robert is fomenting here and now is a lot like what befell Rome in the 6th century. Urgent telepathic distress call for Stephen. Elizabeth is still at the school, class is in session, and fights are breaking out again among the blue and the green. Stephen jaunts to the school, but Chris will have to drive. Oh, oops. Guess whose Jeep has an APB out for it? You guessed it. Time for another car chase. But this one leads right through a roadblock into a rock quarry. Guess who's under arrest? But at the same time, guess who tells the cops that his friend is being held in a dungeon in the basement of an antique shop? The only problem is, the whole place seems to be boarded up. Not only is there no sign of Robert or John, there's not even a trace of the cells that would back up Chris's story. Speaking of stories, guess what's to be continued? Unlike some of the other UK shows Retrogram has covered, there's a pretty good chance you've seen this one if you're of a certain age. The Tomorrow People was one of the shows which made up the early Nickelodeon programming block called The Third Eye. In the early 80s, it gathered several British genre shows under one umbrella, including Children of the Stones, Into the Labyrinth, and The Haunting of Cassie Palmer, all of which Retrogram will cover over time. The series was created and this story was written by Roger Price. Roger Damon Price had several screenwriting credits prior to creating The Tomorrow People, although that Nickelodeon connection I mentioned turned out to be pretty significant. He went directly from the final season of The Tomorrow People in 1979 to begin writing and producing a little show called You Can't Do That on Television. That being said, The Tomorrow People left quite the cultural footprint on both sides of the Atlantic. It was revived on TV in the UK in 1992, lasted about three years there, and again in the US in 2013 as a slick Greg Berlanti-produced series for the CW, which lasted only one season and also raised the ages of all the characters so they could have the kind of romantic entanglements and sexual tension that you apparently have to have on American TV. So there you go, Roger Price proving that you can, in fact, do that on television over and over again. There are plenty of Tomorrow People episodes that we'll cover, so we can probably introduce you to one cast member at a time. So let's start with Nicholas Young as John. Nicholas was in his 20s when he auditioned for the part, so he is easily the oldest of the Tomorrow People. He's also been seen in Upstairs, Downstairs and Space 1999. In the 1980s and 90s, he took on a new role as an agent representing other actors. From 2001 to 2007, however, he returned to the role of John when Big Finish Productions released a series of Tomorrow People audio adventures with a mixture of original cast members of the 1970s series 
and some new recruits as well. That audio series came to a sudden end when the rights holders rather abruptly decided not to renew Big Finish's license at the end of 2007, probably because the show format was being shopped around for what would become the CW series. And how abruptly was the license pulled? Nicholas Young had completed recording on two upcoming audio stories that never saw the light of day, even though they got as far as Big Finish releasing cover artwork in advance of their anticipated release. Nicholas also appeared as a new character, Professor Aldous Crick, in the CW's reboot of The Tomorrow People, so I think it's safe to say that this is a series and a, a universe that he enjoyed working on. Nigel Pegram guest stars as Robert's grandfather, but funny thing, Nigel was in his 30s when he appeared here. Hey, some guys start young. In this episode in particular, the quote-unquote old man is seen running around and brandishing a shotgun, doing some comedy, you know, some physical comedy bits, so perhaps it made more sense to go young on the casting. Nigel would also appear in the final story of this season of Tomorrow People as an entirely different character with less gray hair. He would go on to appear in Space 1999, The Singing Detective, and Lovejoy, and provided voices in such animated films as All Dogs Go to Heaven and An American Tale, Fievel Goes West. So, something really surprising in this episode, a pun fully intended, it stunned me when I saw it. Stephen's packing! <laughs> Everybody run! Stephen's got a stun gun! I was surprised, to say the least, to see them strap even a futuristic weapon onto the show's youngest regular character as he goes looking for John. That's... Wow, 1974. Wow. The shot of the kids under Robert's control menacing Elizabeth at the school is simultaneously cheesy and creepy. Maybe it's effective in a slightly campy sort of way. I don't want to damn it with faint praise, but... it. It both works and doesn't work at the same time. I probably should have found a better way to put this. It's an interesting shot, I'll put it that way. The thing I love about the Tomorrow People is the same thing a lot of people love about 1970s Doctor Who, and I think you'll find there's probably a significant crossover in the fandoms for these two shows. There's a nice, enjoyable mix of the series regulars taking things deadly seriously, and guest stars, such as the aforementioned 30-something granddad, coming in and camping things up a bit. It's a hard combination to pull off without the whole thing descending into self-parody, but most of the time, Tomorrow People gets the mixture just about right. The atmosphere in this story, and really a lot of the second season overall, is pretty creepy. Now, this whole thing about the blue badge wearers arbitrarily going to war with the green badge bearers might sound familiar, especially if you're a fan of the 90s syndicated sci-fi series Babylon 5. There was an episode in Season 2 called The Geometry of Shadows, where the alien species known as the Drazi reveal that they too have a similar tradition, one to which Commander Susan Ivanova tries to put an end. <laughs> The Six Million Dollar Man, Season 1, Episode 6, Doomsday and Counting. Aired Friday, March 1st on ABC. The story so far. 
Meet Steve Austin, test pilot turned astronaut, turned moonwalker, turned test pilot, until he barely survives the crash of an experimental plane, losing an eye, one arm, and both legs in the process. These missing organs and limbs are replaced with state-of-the-art nuclear-powered bionic prosthetics. His new eye can see further, his new legs can run faster, his arm can lift more and hit harder. It's not a cheap procedure, and the price tag is, well, you know, about six million bucks. If only we'd had a clue to how much that cost. There's another price tag attached too. In exchange for keeping him alive and maintaining his implants, a top-secret agency known only as OSI, the Office of Scientific Intelligence, will assign him to hazardous duty in international hotspots too dangerous for your average flesh-and-blood secret agent. Oscar Goldman, Austin's new boss, is constantly worried about the well-being of his new top agent, because sometimes even Steve Austin's new assignments push the limits of what his bionically enhanced body can do. Doomsday and counting. Former cosmonaut Colonel Vasily Zhukov is an old friend of Steve Austin's, and he's paying a visit to the United States to make quite a proposition. He wants to revive an abandoned nuclear reactor and the adjacent facility on Kamkov Island in the Soviet Union, use it to test a nuclear space engine, and then build and launch a joint international mission to Mars. He wants American astronauts and Soviet cosmonauts to set foot on the red planet at the same time. And then, oh, oh, hang on, urgent message here. Ah, uh, hey, that island with the abandoned nuclear reactor, it just got hit by a major earthquake. Zhukov stops his proposal in mid-presentation and gets on the next plane back to Russia. Steve, being his old friend, plans to follow, but Oscar says that's against protocol. The Soviets would only allow a visit to be made by two Americans simultaneously. Well then, Steve says, I guess you better get on the next plane, Oscar. Yeah, you guessed it. Oscar's loving this already. A helicopter touches down on Kamkov Island, and Zhukov and Steve Austin disembark. Zhukov's commanding officer, a rather testy general, informs Zhukov that his lady friend, Irena, who was working at the facility, has been trapped underground. No one has heard from her since the quake. She's probably okay. I mean, there's a lot of places to take shelter down there. She'll have oxygen for a while. But the general is not committing any manpower to a search. After this briefing, another quake hits, and a large girder comes loose from one of the buildings at the facility. It's going to crush Zhukov, except Steve Austin kind of brushes it aside single-handedly. I mean, literally, single-handedly. When Zhukov asks how he did that, Steve confides to his old friend, There was an aircraft accident, I was a man barely alive, and I'm kind of sort of bionic now. Don't tell everybody, okay? Zhukov immediately has an idea. Hey, Steve, buddy, pal, you could help me go find Arena and rescue her. Steve's up for it, but he warns his old friend that even his strength has limits. They're just starting to work their way down to the lower levels when they spot toxic gas floating below, almost flooding that level beneath them. They're beating a hasty retreat when another earthquake hits... Hey, guess who's trapped? This is probably why the general didn't want to commit anyone to a search for Irena. The general has to inform his commissar that the visiting American celebrity astronaut is now trapped in the rubble. Fortunately for all involved, though, their commissar is not in town. Uh-oh. 
So yeah, now there does need to be a search. Oh, and that other American who is supposed to be coming? His plane is almost here. Even though Kamkov Island is about the unsafest place in the world right now, surely that will go over well in diplomatic circles. Now, I have to point out that since he's disobeyed direct orders, Zhukov is now a rebel in the rubble. He and Steve keep descending into the depths of the bunker-like nuclear facility. Uh, hey, why are there red lights flashing in here, Zhukov? It uh, turns out Zhukov doesn't know, but uh, yeah, surely it's harmless, right? They find Irena, and she seems to have survived the earthquake and resulting collapse of the facility relatively unscathed, but she's pretty adamant about not leaving. You see, there's a nuke down here, not a reactor, a bomb. It was placed there by the Soviet military at the height of the Cold War as a last line of defense in case Kamkov Island was attacked or invaded. The bomb is computer-controlled, and the constant earthquakes could fool the computer sensors into thinking the island is being bombed. So that would nuke the place with all of them in it or on top of it. That includes Oscar Goldman, by the way. He's just arrived. Oh, and Arena says those flashing red lights mean the computer is getting ready to detonate the nuke. Oh, about an hour from now. Well, let's get to the computer room, huh, guys? Look who's here. It's Oscar Goldman. Welcome to Kamkov Island. You're standing on a bomb. Everyone who's topside, except for Oscar and the Soviet general, evacuate the island. Oscar and the general aren't exactly best buddies, but neither one of them is going to abandon someone under their command if there's even a chance that the bomb can be stopped. Underground, things aren't going too well. Colonel Zhukov is killed by an automatic laser defense system. And that leaves Steve and Irena to hack the computer with just ten minutes to spare. It turns out the computer has taken some damage. Steve starts furiously rewiring, and there's just too much to do with too little time. Instead, Steve rips open a panel, grabs a huge cable carrying live current, and shorts out the whole computer. And what do you know? No boom. The main guest star of this episode, Gary Collins, was just one of those quintessential all-American actors with good looks, perfect hair, and he wasn't off of our screens for very long at any point during his career. In the 1960s, he starred in Iron Horse and The Wackiest Ship in the Army, and he was a guest star in several episodes of Love American Style as a different guy each time. Then he went on to star in The Sixth Sense, a supernatural paranormal series that aired in 1972. He also guest starred on The Bionic Woman, though obviously not as his character who gets killed in this episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. And he had a recurring role in the very short-lived series The Fantastic Journey, so we will definitely be discussing Gary Collins' work in other retrograms. Heck, we might even talk about more of his work in this retrogram. You never know. We lost Gary Collins in 2012. British actress Jane Merrow was a recent arrival in the States, having moved across the Atlantic in 1971. In her home country, she starred in the 1963 miniseries Lorna Doone, and was also seen in The Saint, The Prisoner, The Avengers, and UFO. Her career in the U.S. included appearances in Mission Impossible, Mannix, Love American Style, The Magician, The Incredible Hulk, The Greatest American Hero, and MacGyver. She returned to the $6 million man as Urena in the 1977 two-parter Death Probe. You have to say it like that or it doesn't count. William Smithers has been on our screens since the 1950s. In the 1960s, he was a mainstay on Peyton Place. He had guest roles in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Invaders, Mission Impossible, Mannix, Star Trek, and the FBI. 
The 70s saw Smithers alternating between TV and movie roles, with parts in Scorpio and Papillon, though he'd resume mainly TV work in the 80s and 90s. Not only is Smithers a method actor, but he's been teaching method acting since the 90s, both in person and by way of a videotape that he produced. The teleplay for this episode was by Larry Brody from a story by Larry Brody and Jim Sangster. Larry Brody broke into Hollywood with a script that never got produced for a film that would have starred Jim Morrison until the lead singer of The Doors flatly refused to shave off his beard for the part. That script still opened doors, though, and Brody's TV writing credits start in 1969 with a couple of episodes of Here Come the Brides. He chased this down with scripts for The Rookies, Medical Center, Ironside, Canon, and even an episode of the animated Star Trek called The Magics of Megas Two. This was his only $6 million man script, and he went on from here to write for, as well as serve as executive story consultant, later bumped up to story editor, on the Bill Bixby series The Magician, which lasted one season. He created the short-lived series David Cassidy, Man Undercover, in the 1977-78 season, and was a producer on Police Story and The Fall Guy. He was an executive producer of Glenn A. Larson's Auto Man, a series that wasn't around for very long, whose thumbnail description is probably best summed up as, Let's do a cop show about Tron. He was the co-creator of Super Force, which ran from 1990 to 92, and wrote, among other things, an episode of Star Trek Voyager in 1996 called Tattoo, and he helped to bring Silver Surfer to TV in animated form. In the 2000s, Larry Brody left Hollywood and settled down in Arkansas. Welsh writer Jimmy Sangster helped to craft the story that was the basis for Brody's screenplay. Sangster was a major player in the story of Hammer Studios, writing many of their scripts, including, again to name just a few, The Revenge of Frankenstein, The Brides of Dracula, The Crawling Eye, and The Horror of Frankenstein. Jimmy Sangster rode his high profile in the world of horror movies straight to Hollywood, where he wrote episodes of Ghost Story and Circle of Fear, which were actually the same show. He also wrote for The Magician and Kolchak the Night Stalker. This is also his only $6 million man contribution. He later drifted into cop shows such as Canon and SWAT and wrote three episodes from the first season of Wonder Woman. Jimmy Sangster died in 2011, and chances are pretty good we'll be seeing more work from both Jimmy and Larry Brody in other installments of Retrogram. Doomsday and Counting was directed by Jerry Jameson. Jerry held the title of editorial supervisor on many hit series before embarking on a directing career. He oversaw editing for The Andy Griffith Show, I Spy, Gomer Pyle, The Guns of Will Sonnet, That Girl, and The Mod Squad. He got behind the camera in the early 70s, directing episodes of The Mod Squad, Search, and a couple more episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, before sliding over to the silver screen as the director of Airport 77 and raise the Titanic. His TV directing credits run through the 21st century, where he helmed installments of Dallas, Models, Inc., Murder, She Wrote, and Walker, Texas Ranger. Pretty sure we'll be discussing more of Jerry Jameson's work in other retrograms, too. The exterior location filming for Kamkov Island was nowhere near the Soviet Union. It was actually done at a Rockwell International facility in California. It's kind of interesting that the the most Russian accent they could afford here was speaking English very clearly. 
A couple of the minor guest stars sound like they're kind of trying to do an accent, but that just makes them stick out even more. And by the way, one of those actors playing one of those small parts trying to do a Russian accent is Walker Edmiston, who would go on to play Enoch on Land of the Lost. There's an odd edit in the scene where the Soviet general is briefing Zhukov on his lady friend's whereabouts. It goes from talking at a fairly level cadence to suddenly shouting, like there's something that was left out in between. It's really sudden. I can't tell if there's actually a major cut here where something in between those two extremes hit the cutting room floor, never to be seen again, or if they went to record ADR and forgot to check the tone of voice from the scene before. I liked that we have an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man that foregoes the tradition of making the lead, indeed only, female character in this story fall for Steve Austin. Granted, here it's a matter of taste. Her future husband has just been zapped to death by lasers. So having her fall for Steve between that and the end of the show would have been a bit ghoulish. Still, it's a nice breather from something that is most assuredly a trope of this series. That kind of makes it stand out. I think this may be one of the better episodes of the first season. Now, with Zhukov's proposal of a joint American-Soviet mission to Mars, I think we can safely say that the Apollo-Soyuz mission that I mentioned at the beginning of the show was very much in the zeitgeist. Now, this episode was over a year before Apollo-Soyuz even launched, though that mission was very much in the public eye at this point. It was a thing that was known was going to happen. Skylab was almost over, and there was a lot of public attention focused on Apollo-Soyuz. So yes, even this episode of The Six Million Dollar Man touches on Apollo. Now, there's also a reference in the script to the United States and Soviet Union being at peace. So this episode really kind of seemed to be basking in a very brief thawing of the Cold War. We now jump back across the Atlantic for Doctor Who Season 11, Episode 12, Death to the Daleks, Part 2, which aired on Saturday, March 2nd, 1974 on BBC One. The story so far. The Doctor is a Time Lord on the run from his home planet Gallifrey and his people, the Time Lords. He stole a TARDIS, a time machine bigger on the inside than out, and wanders the universe with his usually human companions, righting wrongs, occasionally defending Earth from alien invasions at various points along the history of the human race, and trying to defeat evil wherever he finds it. His current sidekick in the TARDIS is the headstrong young journalist Sarah Jane Smith. In part one, after a couple of harrowing adventures at various points in Earth history, one of which brought her into contact with the Doctor and Unit, Sarah Jane Smith was ready for a vacation. Fair enough, the doctor just happens to be talking up a planet where the water is so effervescent it's impossible to sink. Guess where the TARDIS doesn't land. Instead, the TARDIS lands on Exelon, but not by choice. An enormous sentient city on the planet is draining so much energy from everything around it that the TARDIS is quickly rendered powerless. And the Doctor is not the only unwelcome visitor on Exelon. An expedition of humans is there mining a substance necessary to cure a plague on Earth, though their ship also is now useless. 
and soon a ship full of Daleks arrives on a mission to deprive the humans of that same precious drug. Hey, if all you humans would line up over there in one place, we'd sure like to get on with the exterminating. Death to the Daleks, Part 2 Oh, hey, our extermination guns? Uh, well, what do you know, they're not exterminating today. That's kind of embarrassing. Unless you're the doctor, he goes and stands toe to metal toe with the Dalek commander to gloat. Daleks without the power to kill? Ha! The best the Dalek commander can manage to do is to say, keep away. And if I don't, the doctor asks, what will you do then? It turns out that the Daleks have been hit by the power drain too. While the doctor enjoys the Daleks being helpless, Captain Railton of the Earth Expedition thinks they can be useful and offers a truce. You help us mine the substance we need. We'll make sure you get the portion of it you need. Nobody exterminates anybody. We all get what we want and go home. The Daleks discuss it amongst themselves and announce that the truce is only in effect until the source of the power drain is identified and exterminated. When the Daleks regain their ability to kill, all bets are off. That's also a pretty good description of how Sarah Jane Smith's day is going. While looking for the Doctor in the fog outside the TARDIS, she was captured by the natives of this planet, hooded humanoids with huge eyes and wicked aim with bows and arrows. They are the Exelons, and as primitive as they are, they're dangerous. You know what else is dangerous about them? They've built their own little religion around that living city. They worship it, and now they want to sacrifice Sarah to it. They hold a bowl of mind-altering incense under her nose. This is no time to get high, and wow, why couldn't we have just landed on the swimming pool planet? The uneasy allies, humans, Daleks, and the Doctor, try to cross the desert plain to reach the city, but they're attacked by a large group of armed Exelons. Those members of the party who are flesh and bone have to hunker down to avoid becoming large humanoid pincushions, like Railton just did. Ouch. The Daleks do what they normally do. They just try to power through the Exelons. Bad idea. One of the Daleks has dealt some serious damage and burst into flames. Then the Exelons divert their attention to their new hostage. Commander Stewart, injured head of the Earth expedition, was convalescing on the Earth ship. Well, was. He's now a prisoner of the Exelons, and he feebly urges his crew to surrender. One of the surviving Daleks, well, it's out of here, leaving two others. The doctor agrees giving up for now is the only way to save Commander Stewart's life. Dan Galloway, now the senior surviving member of Stewart's crew, is having a hard time with surrendering to, well, anybody. They're taken back to the caves near the Exelon City, but when the doctor sees that Sarah's been drugged to serve as a sacrifice, he charges into the rescue and is quickly beaten down by the sheer numbers and brute force of the Exelon monks. As the doctor recovers, Galloway and Railton have a spirited argument. Galloway doesn't think Railton's up to command, and he's still not on board with this whole surrendering thing. The Daleks open negotiations with the Exelon High Priest. They offer their technological expertise. Oh, oh, and that guy the humans call the Doctor? Yeah, the Daleks are old enemies of his. They promise absolutely no interference in whatever action the Exelons plan to take against him. Back at the Dalek ship, speaking of technological expertise, the Daleks have rolled back a few upgrades, at least to their weapons. Since energy weapons are a no-go thanks to the power-draining city, how about purely mechanical ones? How about Daleks armed with machine guns? What could possibly go wrong? The Daleks test their gats on the first couple of Exelons they run into, 
Hey, good news, the Daleks are a lethal force to be reckoned with again. Good news, if you happen to be a Dalek. In the caves, the negotiations are over. The Daleks have managed to talk their way to freedom, and the Exelons will release the human expedition, too. But it's too late for Commander Stewart. He's breathing his last. With his last breath, he calls Galloway over and tells him that young Peter Hamilton is now in command. And then Commander Stewart dies. With no witnesses to that last order except Galloway, this is an order that will never be heard by the rest of the humans. Sacrifice time again. Both the Doctor and Sarah are being drugged. Just in the nick of time, the Daleks from the ship storm the caves, guns blazing. The Doctor and Sarah run for it, but the only escape route that doesn't put the Doctor in the Daleks' line of fire is deeper into the caves. This is an idea Sarah's not too sure about, because this is where the Exelons were going to put them to be sacrificed anyway. In the main chamber, Galloway, still claiming he's in command, wants to know what the Daleks are up to. It's simple, they tell him. We're going to threaten some of the Exelons with execution if they don't obey us. Galloway says, hey, that's a great idea. Let's use the Exelons as slave labor, mining the substance we all came here for at gunpoint. The Exelons have one condition. There's a rebel group of Exelons that has been causing them problems. They want the Daleks to exterminate them. Galloway's good with that, too, but Hamilton and crewmate Jill Tarrant are disgusted. They came here to find something to save millions of lives, but not at the cost of murdering others. But Galloway, he's totally down with this plan. The natives of this planet are pretty much animals. They don't count. You know who else Galloway is okay with killing? The Doctor and Sarah. The Daleks want them retrieved from the tunnels, dead or alive. In those tunnels, the Doctor and Sarah split up because, you know, that always works. The Doctor will scout out further ahead to make sure it's safe, while Sarah is supposed to watch the way they came. But while she's keeping watch, here's one of those Exelon fellas. And the Doctor walks straight into trouble himself, a very alive, very mechanical, well, it, it might be a tentacle or some kind of electronic snake. And either way, it looks like really bad news, and to be continued. The doctor says that inside each Dalek shell is a living, bubbling lump of hate. For those of you making Doctor Who supercuts for YouTube, this is one of those defining moment thumbnail descriptions of the Daleks, as the doctor tells Sarah that they are not simply robots. The sound effect for the electric tentacle thing is pretty effective. What with being played at full volume on its first appearance, it's so overmodulated, it, it kind of can't help but wake you up. Now, let's talk about the convenient moral relativism of Dan Galloway. Let's talk about him declaring the Exelon's primitives, animals, others, expendable. And let's talk about people doing that in the here and now, because this is how it starts. Galloway starts out as a man on a well-meaning mission, but the moment Commander Stewart dies and Galloway doesn't pass on his final orders to the others, Galloway's an illegitimate leader. The moment Galloway is ready to go along with the Daleks' aims to commit murder and genocide, Galloway's an illegitimate leader who is ready to paint his wrongful claim to be an authority with the blood of others. I can't say he's dehumanizing the Exelons, since they aren't human to begin with, but he is a. relegating them to a life of inhumane imprisonment and servitude, and b. he's devaluing them, so it's more morally convenient and easy to kill them when he feels they've become a liability. 
Fast forward to 2019. Look at things like kids caged at the southern border of the United States with no access to their parents and no access to legal help. Look at that and tell me, what steps are we between? Galloway is a step away from being a Dalek himself, not just not one made of metal. The Daleks are bred and manufactured to be a force for evil, but Galloway has a choice. He's complicit in their atrocities. Again, flash forward to 2019, what does that make us? Somewhere between Galloway and the Daleks, the Doctor is spending this story fighting fascists. Genocidal ones, at that. Anyone who thinks that Doctor Who's stance on helping the downtrodden, the disadvantaged, the marginalized, and the oppressed is some newfangled, politically correct thing that only appeared with the new series clearly hasn't been watching very long. Get out of the internet echo chamber, watch the classic series, and see for yourself. This has been the Doctor's mission for a very long time, all the way back to William Hartnell. The scripts that Chris Chibnall writes for Jodie Whittaker's Doctor are carrying on a very long tradition. This is an episode of Doctor Who that works great in the here and now. This is a 1974 Doctor Who story that we apparently need to re-watch in 2019. Now, finally, what does this week in 1974 have to do with going to the moon? Well, it's this TV movie of the week, Houston, We've Got a Problem, which aired Saturday, March 2nd, 1974, on ABC. April 11th, 1970, Apollo 13 lifts off. A couple of days into its flight to the moon, a routine procedure has unexpected consequences, and suddenly the command and service module Odyssey is a crippled spacecraft. Landing on the moon is off the table. In fact, even getting back to Earth is looking kind of iffy. That's when Apollo Flight Commander Tim Cordell gets a call in the middle of the night. Things are looking kind of bad. You need to come in to work. His wife, Angie, isn't happy about this. How not happy? She yells, Why do you even bother coming home? And chucks something at him. She says that the only satisfaction she gets out of life is yelling at him. So she's that not happy. At Mission Control, Tim is on his way into the building, and he finds himself walking next to Lisa, wife of his fellow flight controller, Steve Bell. He decides that she's the perfect person to unload his marital woes onto. Tim gets right to work. Lisa's just there to drop by and see Steve on her way home from a movie, and she just doesn't get how bad the situation is. She thinks he's working too hard. He has to get back to work, and he'll be home really late. Turns out their marriage isn't all that great either. Flashback to earlier, happier times, frolicking around the pool at their place in Houston, and suddenly Steve is writhing on the ground in agony. Heart attack. I did mention this is a flashback, right? Okay. Lisa's worried that this could happen to Steve again if he keeps pushing himself so hard. Flashback's over. She stares at Steve from the visitor's observation area as he yells at his fellow flight controllers. Hope she's got a decent life insurance policy on him because it seems like it's only a matter of time. 
morning. Tim calls Angie at home. He's not going to be home anytime soon. This Apollo 13 stuff is getting wild. Oh, and by the way, tomorrow's April 15th. Can you file our income tax? What a ridiculous idea. Angie Cordell knows nothing of this income tax of which you speak. Press conference time, and despite all the reassurances off the record, one reporter is told that it's bad up there. Real bad. If Apollo 13's heat shield was damaged in the explosion, then everything that's being done to keep the three astronauts alive might be pointless. By the way, don't print that. Thanks. Steve Bell's holding court over an emergency meeting of the White Team with Tim Cordell and more of NASA's best and brightest minds in attendance. If they don't do something fast, Apollo 13 could shoot past the moon and into deep space. plan is devised, and it's a risky one. One engine burns soon to keep the spacecraft on a free-return trajectory that uses the moon's gravity to send them back to Earth, and then another burn to speed up the return trip so the astronauts don't run out of things like air and water. But never mind that, ground controllers have problems too. Shimon Levin returns home to find his mother anxiously waiting. His father is on his deathbed. His time could come at any time. Shimon's mother wants him to take off work to be with his father, but that's just not in the cards. And Lou Matthews, he's got to pick up his son and take him to school. Oh hey, kid's mom is here. That is to say, Lou's ex-wife, who doesn't live here anymore is in Lou's house. It's time to argue over custody arrangements. Nope, nope, she'd rather have that conversation in court. Okay, then. Time to coach the kid on how to tell the judge he'd rather live with Dad. His dad, who just spent the whole night at Mission Control while the kid was home alone. Meanwhile, back at the space ranch, Gene Kranz has called in some relief for his team of controllers. But hey, not so fast. You guys aren't going home. You get to come up with a whole new procedure for re-entry because the command module's been powered down to preserve what's left of its batteries. It's a situation that even the simulators haven't had to throw at either the ground controllers or the astronauts before because it's something that was never supposed to happen. Kind of like this whole exploding service module jazz, am I right? Everyone go get some sleep because the next three days or so, you're on. You don't have to tell Steve Bell and Tim Cordell twice. They're out of there. Wee! Let's go home. Cut to Bell sitting at home, watching nonstop coverage of Apollo 13, working the numbers out in longhand. Yeah, very relaxing. Remember Lisa, a.k.a. Mrs. Bell? She's got some hard questions for her husband. If you not getting rest means there's a fatal mistake in your calculations, or if your body fails you under the strain, where does that leave her? Or, for that matter, where does that leave the wives and families of the astronauts who might not make it if he screws up? No pressure, honey. But Steve Bell is adamant. He's got to be the guy whose numbers bring these astronauts home alive, because that's his job and he's damn good at it. As for Tim and Angie, they're fighting again. She didn't do the taxes. She almost called a CPA to come over and do them. Or maybe she was calling a CPA to come over and do her. At least that's what Tim thinks. Never mind, he gathers up his papers, both Earth and space-related, and goes to spend the night at a hotel instead. Shimon Levin wakes up on the couch. He just slept through his dad passing away. His mom needs him now more than ever. She needs him to take some time off from work, but in the morning, Shimon can't bring himself to ask Gene Kranz for time off. Too much is riding on his extensive knowledge of the command and service module. Lou has a visitor at Mission Control, his lawyer. 
The custody hearing has been moved up to tomorrow afternoon, and uh, there's pretty much no chance Lou can be there in person while his kid tells the judge, Yeah, my dad's always there for me. I want to live with him. There's a slight problem with the optics in that situation, but hey, he'll take off work if he can. If not, his lawyer will be there. That's okay, right? Steve Bell feels a twinge in his arm. Ah, oh, crap, not now. Curse you, heart of mine. Fortunately, Shimon is there, and he gives him some aspirin, because, you know, that'll keep another heart attack at bay. Was this movie sponsored by Bayer? Dramatic music, lots of acting. Walk it off, Bell. You've got spacemen to bring home. There you go, heart. I showed you. Let's get back to work. A few hours later, Shimon has a visitor, too. His brother. His brother, the rabbi, with a little reminder. Uh... We're burying our dad today. Mom needs you, and you are violating the rules of our faith, buddy. Bishimon stands fast. Those astronauts have mothers and wives and children, too. His brother just says he'll try to explain this all to Mom. Lou gets a call from his tearful son at the courthouse. Whoops, uh, forgot that whole custody hearing thing. Buck up and stop crying, kid. Be a man. In the middle of that spiel, Lou's kid hangs up on him. By the time Angie Cordell calls to gripe at her husband, no more outside calls are being accepted for the white team. It's go time. Time to figure out how to bring those astronauts home. Oh, but wait, Tim Cordell has an emergency call from home. Angie has overdosed herself on sleeping pills. She was told emergency calls only. How about it, honey? Is this enough of an emergency? Nope, Tim says. Go to the bathroom. Stick your finger down your throat. Induce vomiting. Be a man. I'll call an ambulance to come get you. Good luck, sweetie. Gotta get back to work. Oh, hey, Lou, your lawyer's back. It turns out your kid decided he wants to live with Mom instead. Hey, hey, it's okay, dude. Buck up. Stop crying. Be a man. Hey, by the way, I bet all these in-person visits to Johnson Space Center qualify as really cool billable hours. Splashdown day. It's time to bring the Apollo 13 crew home. All our boys are in the ground control trenches. Steve's wife is here, and Tim's wife, too, now that she's had a good stomach pump and a good talking to. As the crew in space gets their first look at the discarded command module, Steve Bell hits peak stress. He even writes it down on a pad of paper, heat shield. He doesn't show that to anyone. He just writes it down because, you know, at some point in our lives, we've all sat down and written out the words, heat shield. Worse yet, those nerds in the back room are questioning Steve's math. Hey, who's the retro officer here? Are you guys or me? Nerds. Steve steps out of the mission operations control room and lies down in the middle of the hall outside. Just gotta rest. Just gotta talk like Shatner. Just gotta have a little cardiac arrest. He's worried that the three men in that spacecraft are burning up right now. That he has let them down. Tim Cordell takes over at the retro console. Even after the expected communications blackout that happens during re-entry, there's dead silence. But finally, Apollo 13 reports in. The crew survived. Their parachutes are working. They're coming home. In mission control, it's all applause, handshakes, and cigars. Tim steps out to tell Steve that he did it. He guided Apollo 13 home safely. But Steve Bell is almost unresponsive. We zoom out to... The, the credits? <laughs> Man, what a bummer. Did Steve Bell make it or not? I mean, I know the astronauts are all clear, but Steve! 
Okay, I'm going to get to all the pieces of trivia that you tune into Retrogram for, but I've got to jump in here right now and tell you this movie is officially the worst thing I have watched for Retrogram so far. It is so bad. I've only seen it once when I watched it for the podcast, and I can confidently say never again. I try to give every show a chance to prove itself to me, even if I've seen it before and found it a bit lacking. But, man, there's a disclaimer read by the narrator at the start of the movie that tells you all you need to know. Much of what you are about to see is true. However, as in all recreated history, some of the characters are fictionalized and are meant to represent the spirit of the Apollo 13 flight controllers and all the other men and women of NASA to whom this film is dedicated. Okay, that's how you know you're in trouble, right there. That's the kind of wordy disclaimer you get from prescription drug commercials on TV. Side effects may include bleeding, dizziness, shortness of breath, shortness of pants, shortness of attention span, cardiac arrest, citizen's arrest, and may cause suicidal urges. Get medical help immediately if your viewing of this movie lasts four hours or more. Ask your doctor if Houston, we've got a problem, is right for you. No purchase necessary, void where prohibited. Batteries not included. Your parents put it together. New from Whammo. This is a bad movie terrible it's a terrible movie really it's like how do you do a movie about a space mission when you can't afford to show the space mission part of it well you focus on the folks on the ground and you make a primetime soap out of it and we might as well go ahead and address the elephant in the room and perhaps this is a cosmically unfair comparison this story has been told much much better by ron howard tom hanks and company on the big screen but first, let's line up the parties responsible for Houston, We've Got a Problem. The movie was written by Dick Nelson. His other credits include episodes of Hawaiian Eye, Bonanza, The Man from Uncle, Wagon Train, The Name of the Game, the supernatural series The Sixth Sense, which also starred Gary Collins, alias Smith and & Jones, and an episode of the live-action Amazing Spider-Man series starring Nicholas Hammond. He also wrote episodes of Wonder Woman, Barnaby Jones, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, T.J. Hooker, Falcon Crest, Jake and the Fat Man, and Murder, She Wrote. The movie was directed by Lawrence Doheny. Lawrence was a frequent flyer behind the camera of TV since the 1950s, with directing credits on The Big Story, Tales of Wells Fargo, Tallahassee 7000, two episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, Adam 12, The Rockford Files, Black Sheep Squadron, Charlie's Angels, couple of episodes of The Greatest American Hero, Simon and Simon, and Magnum P.I. His next assignment might have been the series Tales of the Gold Monkey, but he never got a directing credit on that show. The fifth episode of that series was dedicated to his memory because he died in 1982. Narrating the movie throughout is actor Eli Wallach. Now, I actually kind of like the bit where it, he gives a nice, concise maybe a little bit oversimplified rundown of the various flight control stations and their abbreviations, ECOM, FIDO, TELMU, and so on. At the same time, I had to laugh during this part because the familiar sound effects of beeps and boops normally associated with medical equipment start up. And it's the same sound effects you hear in the opening titles of The Six Million Dollar Man. Which brings me back to who was behind this movie. Did I mention Harve Bennett himself was the executive producer? Harv is one of that rare breed of celebrity producer. He had been writing for TV since 1952, but by the end of the 50s, he had already moved into producing everything from TV movies of the week to the Miss America pageant. 
He moved into series production in a producer role for the first three seasons of The Mod Squad, though he always had a credit on that series as the developer of the format. For several years afterward, he produced TV movies, including this one, before moving back into series television as a producer and writer on The Invisible Man, Rich Man, Poor Man, Gemini Man, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, and Salvage One, when suddenly Paramount's movie division called him in to produce the first sequel to one of their big-screen tentpole franchises, whose first movie had cost a lot more time, money, and behind-the-scenes anguish than the studio wanted to deal with. Paramount wanted Harve Bennett to apply his strictly regimented budgeting and production skills on a little flick that premiered in 1982 called Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. And before you knew it, Harve Bennett was now a movie producer rather than a TV producer, overseeing the next three movies in the Star Trek franchise. His reign ended with 1989's Star Trek V The Final Frontier, in which he also had an on-screen cameo as Admiral Bennett. He returned to TV in the 90s as the executive producer of Time Tracks on Warner Brothers' short-lived primetime entertainment network, which was really more of a syndication package than anything that had any chance of becoming an actual network. He also directed one episode of that show. In 1998, he created, wrote, and produced the animated sci-fi series Invasion America for the WB. Harv Bennett died in 2015. But every showrunner, no matter how good they are, sooner or later, they walk a big shaggy dog out onto the stage. It's the law of averages. There are things to like about this movie. There's not many, but a few. I mean, look at what a cast was assembled here. Starring as Steve Bell, Robert Culp was one of those incredibly talented multi-hyphenates who actually rose to the top. After paying his dues with a few years of guest-starring roles in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Studio One in Hollywood, Craft Theater, and the U.S. Steel Hour, Culp landed a starring role in Trackdown, a series which ran from 1957 through 59. It was back to guest star of the week after that in Johnny Ringo, Rawhide, The Barbara Stanwyck Show, The Rifleman, Kane's Hundred, The Outer Limits, where he starred in Harlan Ellison's Demon with a Glass Hand episode, and The Man from Uncle before landing the starring role opposite Bill Cosby in I Spy. That show ran from 65 through 68, and the 70s proved to be a decade of guest-starring and TV movie starring roles, including the oddball Gene Roddenberry series pilot Spectre, Roots, The Next Generations, and this movie, to name just a few. 1981 saw another series regular role arrive with Culp co-starring as Bill Maxwell in The Greatest American Hero, so it sounds to me like we will definitely be seeing more of Robert Culp, and probably in some much better material in other installments of Retrogram. Oklahoma's own Clue Gulliger stars as Lou Matthews. The Tall Man, Wagon Train, Bonanza, The Virginian, name me a TV western, Clue Gulliger has probably been in it. As westerns gave way to cop shows, medical dramas, and spy characters in the 70s, Clue Gulliger was there for that, too. San Francisco International Airport, The Mod Squad, Mannix, Kung Fu, Ironside, Cannon, Hawaii Five-0. Then came the 80s. Guess who's back for more? Clue Gulliger. Guest star on Falcon Crest, Chips, Auto Man, Knight Rider, Magnum, The Fall Guy, Murder, She Wrote. On the big screen, you've seen him in Return of the Living Dead, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, and quite a few others. With a track record like that, if you need to get a clue, Clue Gulliger is the only clue you need. Hey, look, Gary Collins is back. But answer me this. How does a one-off movie guest star 
somebody. Now, some other interesting casting notes here. Robert T. White, NASA's actual 1970s mission commentator, appears as himself, as do numerous actual flight controllers. White's voice is so familiar to space history buffs, it's actually kind of neat to see the man himself. Also putting in a cameo appearance as himself, that is the real top of Tom Stafford's head. (laughs) At the time this was filmed, Tom Stafford was actively training for the upcoming Apollo-Soyuz test project, of which he was a crew member. And by the way, if you are ever anywhere near Weatherford, Oklahoma, please do yourself a favor and plan a lengthy stop at the Stafford Air and Space Museum, founded by the very same Lieutenant General Thomas Stafford. If you're very lucky, you might have the opportunity to meet the man himself if he happens to be there. I've made this trip several times when I lived across the border in Arkansas, and it was worth it every time. Something that I cannot say about this movie. Now, the real star of the show here is Mission Control, starring as itself. It's really, frankly, astonishing that NASA would have approved letting this be filmed on their premises. I'm guessing the agency was naive enough at this point that they did not ask for power of script approval. For context, this was likely filmed in late 1973, and between the end of September and mid-November, there was a gap between Skylab flights during which Mission Control might have been able to accommodate filming during non-training exercise downtime. Now, there are a lot of details that this movie gets right. The mention of the heat shield possibly being damaged as a concern, the course correction burns, the mismatch of the carbon dioxide filters the shallow re-entry angle, they actually get a lot of the details right, but it, it gets eclipsed by so much that they did wrong. The astronaut's actual audio is used here, and in scenes where flight controllers interact with the recordings of the actual astronauts, they stick pretty close to the NASA transcripts of the ground-to-air loop. What else can I say that's good about this movie? Um, there are some fantastic sideburns in this movie. It was 1974, after all. Okay, so back to our elephant in the room. How does this stack up against Ron Howard's Apollo 13? Now, maybe it's not fair, because Apollo 13 was a major motion picture with a major motion picture budget. But I can try to illustrate it this way. Apollo 13 is a double cheeseburger with four different cheeses melted together, sliced mushrooms, a big, thick slice of bacon, and those buns that have bits of onion baked into them. Man, I'm making myself hungry. Houston, we've got a problem. Is a particle of that bright orange cheese powder that winds up on your fingers after you've handled a single Dorito, maybe a Cheeto. Now, I'm not saying Houston, we've got a problem is the Cheeto. It's the particle. It's the powder. Let's be fair, Ron Howard's Apollo 13 includes some fictionalized scenes, too. The Fred Hayes-Jack Swigert rivalry was invented entirely for the film, as was the notion that anyone in Mission Control doubted Swigert's ability, since he was literally the backup command module pilot and had trained for the mission like he was going to fly it all along. That's what backup crews did. But Ron Howard and his screenwriters knew that they really didn't need to invent a whole lot of incident because the real-life details of what was actually happening during Apollo 13 were amazing and thrilling enough to hang a whole movie on. It could be that this realization is easier to come by when you're committing the resources of a major movie to the story rather than what is likely an under-budgeted TV movie that couldn't afford a single non-stock set. 
Now, if you think about it, once we're done with the NASA, with the um, Johnson Space Center location filming, everything that wasn't shot on location in Houston fell under the following categories. Bedroom, living room, hospital room, another living room. Picture-perfect recreations of Apollo spacecraft were not off-the-shelf sets or set pieces back then. Special effects were expensive. Eh, they're still expensive. I get it. But the ground controllers had enough drama to deal with on Earth without having to graft all of this equally stock soap opera situation onto the proceedings. And that's where Ron Howard really gets it right, and Houston We've Got a Problem gets it all kinds of wrong. The events surrounding Apollo 13 were some of the most intense drama ever to occur in the American space program. And this movie tries to pile some very mundane Earth-bound drama on top of that, and it just doesn't need to. When people issue blanket statements like, TV sucked in the 70s, man, this is the kind of stuff they're thinking about. But that kind of blanket statement craps all over a lot of better entertainment, just like this movie doesn't do any favors to the men and women who were behind every mission to the moon. There's an anecdote, and I'm using that word very specifically because I can't really find any verification on this. Supposedly, Apollo 13 Commander Jim Lovell himself, after seeing the movie on TV, after seeing this movie on TV, uh, had the following to say. The crew members would have been safer in space had all this actually been going on in Houston. Ouch! If anyone can get away with saying that, it's Jim Lovell, because he knows better than most that the Apollo 13 crew survived due to the fierce determination of the NASA ground crew to get them back safely. And you know, the movie's probably not entirely wrong. Families of astronauts and ground controllers alike made huge sacrifices to further the goals of the American space program. Not all of those families survived intact. But this probably happened without rabbis and divorce attorneys converging on Johnson Space Center unannounced, all at the most inopportune moments. And hopefully it happened without guys having heart attacks in the hallways in the most dramatic fashion possible. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by DZ and Forget the Whale, also licensed under Creative Commons. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to the Logbook.com's Patreon supporters. If you love Retrogram, become one of them. Every little bit helps keep the Logbook.com and its podcast and video casts going. You can be like Kevin and Darwin and Javier and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash the logbook. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, shower curtains, yes, shower curtains, and other goodies from our store at webbubble.com slash people slash the logbook, including brand new designs to show your love for Retrogram. Or you can order all sorts of things through our affiliate links at the logbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. In fact, did you know that you can order Houston We've Got a Problem on VHS there? Okay, now if you want to watch something good and you want to, say, catch up on Star Trek Discovery or you want to be ready for the new Picard series this fall, you can sign up for a free week of CBS All Access through our links. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the logbook and Retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.